We're going to take a look at John chapter 1 this morning. And as we celebrate Christmas this time of the year in a week or so, I thought we could stir our thoughts this morning toward the Savior by looking at a passage about His birth, not necessarily one that we typically think of during this season. We often think about Christmas and think about all that goes into it. For some people, it's about the lights and the the color and the decorations and the trees. For some people, it's maybe about children and they think about uh, the innocence of the little Christmas child or they think about their own children. They think about family. For some people, it's about gifts and exchanging gifts and, and, and all of those things. I think we all recognize that materialism is a constant entrapment for us during this season. But for me, Christmas is really wrapped up in one of the most profound thoughts that could ever enter our minds, a theological concept, that about God becoming a man. Like everyone else, I certainly enjoy this time of the year for family, friends, reunions, all of those things. But the one thought that always strikes me with profundity, always makes me pause and, and lift up a, a word of praise, is the thought that God came to dwell with us in human form. And that's where I want us to gather our thoughts this morning, not from Matthew's gospel that sort of gives the political story, if you will, of Christ's coming, or not from Luke's gospel that gives us the personal side of the story, but from John's gospel that gives us the theological side. And he says this in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's really an amazing statement. That God came to dwell with us. You know, there was a time when God dwelt with man. A time when that kind of thing was common. God with man. It was in the garden and the scripture tells us that he would actually come in the cool of the evening to walk with man and to enjoy his company, enjoy his fellowship. That was the way God designed the world. That's the way he designed life. He designed life so that we could have that kind of fellowship with him. Something tragic happened though. Sin, entering into the heart of man and into the world, caused God's judgment to come against us. It brought with it not only death and destruction and decay into our bodies, into our life, it brought with it broken fellowship with God. God no longer walked with man in the cool of the evening, his His communion with man was broken. He didn't walk with us. He didn't dwell with us. He didn't enjoy company together with us the way that he designed life because of sin. From that time forward, it wasn't a pleasant stroll anymore. Man lived under the judgment of God, under the condemnation because of our sin and in threat of hell. But God chose a people called Israel and he announced to them That while he no longer communed with man in that way, he announced to Israel that he would dwell with them as his special chosen people. In fact, God announced that he would do this 
But he would do it in a unique kind of a way. He would do it in a, a tent, something that became known as the tabernacle. If we were to flip over to Exodus, he gives the instruction in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. A tabernacle of meeting is what it became known. It was, it was constructed according to God's command and all the furnishings exactly the way he designed it, all of it to represent the great great privilege and also the holy responsibility of having this kind of fellowship together with God, the tabernacle of meeting. And if you look at Exodus 33, in verse 9, you get an idea of how this tabernacle was being used in God's relationship. We read about Moses, whenever he would go out to the temple, or excuse me, to the tabernacle, it says, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is a description of what it was like now. It wasn't the same necessarily for all of Israel. They weren't necessarily walking with God in the cool of the evening, but they were having contact with God. They were having some fellowship with God. And Moses having this unique face-to-face experience. Of course, we know exactly uh, that, that what we sh- I should say, we know what it was not when he says face-to-face. It wasn't necessarily that same experience that, that uh, Adam had. In fact, if you go down to verse, uh, verse 18 in, in Exodus 33, we read Moses uh, saying this, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So this was now the nature of the interaction between God and man. It was a kind of presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. It was a kind of of connection with God. It was a kind of fellowship with God. But it wasn't what Adam had. It wasn't anything like that. Because while it uses this phrase that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man would speak to his friend. We understand from later in the context that Moses never actually saw his face. No one could actually see his face and live. That's why Moses was continuing to plead with God, show me your glory. I mean, I've I've entered the tent, I've entered into this relationship with you, but I still feel like there's there's something missing. I still feel like there's a gap, if you will. This was the experience with God. And God would show His glory a number of other times. We read about it throughout the pages of Scripture. When the manna came down from heaven, it says, the Bible says that the glory of the Lord was seen by the people. We read in, in uh, 
Exodus as well, that when Moses went up to meet with God to receive the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments, it says, Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. When you go to Exodus 40, whenever they complete the tabernacle, we read about the cloud coming down and covering the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. Later in Leviticus, Moses gives instruction to Aaron and his sons to establish a priesthood. He gave them instructions about the sacrifices, and he said, this is the thing the Lord commanded you, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you also. Aaron had these things done, and it's recorded there in Leviticus 9, verse 23, that the glory of the Lord at that time appeared to all the people. Numbers 14, there were 10 spies that were sent into the promised land to scout out the territory, and the people rebelled against God's instruction at that point. And, and those spies that came back, they, uh, 10 of them tried to dissuade Israel from going in, uh, two of them, as we know, wanted them to go in as the Lord had commanded. And they were going to stone the two who were uh, urging Israel to go in. But where we read that point, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the children of Israel. And they turned back from their rebellion. Over and over again, you read about the glory of the Lord appearing at various times to the people of Israel. But it was always, it was always in this sort of mysterious form. His glory in the tabernacle, His glory among the people. You're still left, when you read about all that, you're still left wondering, as a reader of the text, just as Israel was wondering, what exactly is the glory of the Lord? So much mystery around it. In fact, Ezekiel, much later in the history of Israel, later in the Bible, Ezekiel begins to talk about the glory of the Lord and how the glory of the Lord would actually depart from the temple before Israel entered into judgment. And he begins to describe it and he uses all of these descriptions, a cloud, bright flashes of light, dazzling precious stones, rainbows, bright metals, wheels, voices, faces, all these amazing creatures that were uh, all around it. And through all that, 20 verses, Ezekiel is giving all these pictures to try to put into words what he was experiencing. And then at the end of the chapter, he says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He didn't even really have words to describe it. He just said it was something like this. It was similar to this, but But that was the best that he could do. You could add to that Psalm 19. The the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. And so we even understand that all around us you have this never-ending chorus of creation that is constantly pouring forth communication of some sort about the glory of the Lord. And throughout all of time, mankind has been captivated by this. They have painted landscapes of this. They have written poems about this and songs about this, all trying to touch something of the glory of the Lord. And still, 
unable to fully grasp it. Job, describing these glories of the Lord, said, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? That's Job. He said, look, we can take all of this in. We can take in all the creation and all the beauty and all the glory and all the splendor. We can take all of that in and still all it is is just a faint whisper of the glory of the Lord. We don't really understand it. And through all of this, you read about this mysterious glory of the Lord that dwelt in some fashion with Israel, but not really something that even the most dear servant of the Lord could fully see. It still left them pining away, asking God, show me your glory. And this is what makes John's statement in John 1 so astounding. He says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It's an interesting word that he uses here. He actually uses this when it says dwelt among us. He uses the word skinao, which literally means a tent or a tabernacle. And John very clearly drawing connection with what, what took place in the Old Testament when God Uh, dwelt in the tent or God tabernacled with his people. What he's telling us is that God came. He had departed certainly during the, the captivity of Israel. He departed from the temple, departed from all that. But here he came and he tabernacled, he dwelt among us and we saw his glory. If glory was sort of whispered, if you will, through the unsearchable majesty of creation, and if it was spoken loudly through the the temple and the tabernacle, God shouted His glory in the incarnation of His Son. Unlike any other time since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden, when Man walked with God in his presence when he strolled with God in the cool of the evening. Unlike any other time in the history of the world, God came to man. Listen to the way the book of Hebrews describes it. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's saying, look, you have all these ways that God used to communicate, that God used to interact through the prophets, through visions, through Moses, or through even the tabernacle, but now... He has revealed His glory through the Son. He tabernacled among us and we saw His glory. And for John, it wasn't a faint whisper. 
It was a glory, he says, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Christmas. It's glory in a manger, really. Glory in a manger. Glory in a stable. More glory than ever filled the temple. More glory than fills all the skies. A glory that's unique because Jesus' coming was unique. And we can think about this glory really in two ways as we look at John 1.14. We can realize first of all that Jesus was the embodiment of glory. The Word, John says, became flesh. We don't have time to look at the whole context, but John has already introduced this concept of the Word. The Logos is the word literally in the Greek. It goes all the way back to verse 1 whenever he talks about God, uh, excuse me, the Word was with God and the Word was God. The word logos basically is a word for an expression, but it can mean a revelation as well. And so what he's really saying is that this, this expression that found expression in the Son, it was already with God in the beginning and it was God. That same Word became flesh. It's interesting, he doesn't say that it put on flesh as if, he, as if he sort of put on a shell or a disguise, and we're not given the impression that this is some sort of temporary form only to be shed one day. He didn't simply adopt some body temporarily, but he became completely, permanently flesh from the tire time of creation this had never happened but now at the incarnation God who is spirit God doesn't have a body but God who is spirit took on flesh he took on a human body even now as we stand here today he is glorified in a human body in the presence of God And eternally, that's how he will dwell. God the Son embodied in human flesh. The idea is not that he was created at this point, but that he always was God, but then he became a man. This is the pre-existence. In fact, if you read verse 15, it adds a testimony from John the Baptist. John came along saying... Or John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, or he has been before me. That is to say, he existed before me. This is not God being created. This is God, the eternal one, the preexistent one, taking on human form. And becoming a man. He became human flesh. So much so that that Luke later tells us that as a baby, he went through the natural process of, of growing and maturing in wisdom and stature and even favor with God and man. He was fully human. Completely divine in nature and the complete nature of humanity. That's who he is. That's not to say that he took on sinful 
flesh. Some people, whenever they think about this word flesh, they they think that it has negative connotations. It's used that way sometimes in Scripture. In fact, some people, when they think about humanity, they think only of imperfection. They, they sort of adopt the old adage, to err is human. And maybe in converse, to be human is to err. They, they assume that, that to be human is to be flawed, but they forget that God didn't create man that way. God didn't create man As a sinful being, he created him perfect in the garden. And so for Jesus to become human doesn't mean that he took on our sinful nature. He became fully man, completely man. He became flesh, but not in a way that he also took on our sinful natures. God God so orchestrated his birth that he was born completely human, but born completely free of sin. He became that way not only so that he could sympathize with your weaknesses, know your temptations, be a sympathetic high priest, but he became that way so that he could die a human death in the place of every person who would ever trust in him. God's wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross because he was fully man so that he could take the place for you and for me and for anyone who believes in him. This was the incarnation. But being God, John declares that we beheld his glory. Even though he became a man, he never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be glorious in that sense. Remember, Hebrews 1 says that he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. It's really an amazing statement. He is the radiance of Or we might even say the brightness of his glory. Kind of makes you think, what is brightness or or what is light? Is it manifestation of something else? Or what is shine? If we were just asking ourselves, what what is it that makes something to shine? Light, we're told, has no volume and has no mass. There are no particles that can be captured and split like an atom. In a sense, light and its brightness cannot be separated. There isn't such a thing as light that doesn't have a shine. There isn't such a thing as shine that isn't light. And yet this is what we're told about Jesus, that he is the brightness of God's glory, the brightness, if you will, of God's shining, implying that he is inseparable from God. He is the shining forth, if you will, of God. As one preacher said it, just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth to light us, to warm us, to give us life and growth, so in Christ... We sense the warmth and the radiance of the glorious light of God touching the hearts of men. The brightness of the sun is of the same nature as the sun. It is as old as the sun. And never was the sun without its brightness. The brightness of the sun cannot be separated from the sun. And yet it's distinct. And so... Christ is God and yet distinct. He is God and yet He is the manifestation, the brightness, the radiance of His glory. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In fact, he clarifies it by saying that he is the exact representation, the exact imprint of his nature. He's not something additional to God. He's he's the same thing in a different way. The visible representation of God's glory in his nature. You remember, of all the things we were reading in the Old Testament, Moses, whenever he was in the tabernacle asking to see God's glory, it wasn't enough for him just to be in the tabernacle. He wanted to see more of God. And God responds to him there in in Exodus 33, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. We read in verse 22, the Lord said, behold, there's a rock uh, there's a, excuse me, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and, I'll, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by and then I'll take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face you shall not see. We're told a few verses later down in Exodus 34 when this event took place. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's glory. This is what he showed to Moses. And what is it? It's his character. It's his nature. He is the God who is merciful and gracious. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. D.A. Carson says that that little phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, could easily be translated as grace and truth. The very words that John uses to describe Jesus. He's abounding in grace and truth. This is the glory that was revealed. The glory of Jesus there that day. It wasn't as if you walked up on the manger, walked into the stable, and there was this sort of nuclear powerhouse of light beaming out from you. That's not what John says was visible. What was visible in Christ was the full glory of God in a perfect man. A man who was abounding in loving kindness and abounding in truth. Everything he said was true. Everything he did was righteous. Everything about him is the fullness of God. He wasn't just the embodiment, though, of glory. He was also unique. As John says there in John 1.14, he continues his description saying that this glory was the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or if you have a King James that says the only begotten of the Father, that has become a confusing phrase for a lot of people because it for some people, has implied that Jesus was created by God. But that's really not what he's saying. 
This word monogenes, it comes from the word genos, from which we get gene or species or kind. We talk about it in terms of our our own genes, which make up the, the kind of species that we are. And so whenever he says that Jesus was the monogenes, the only kind of his being, he was spiritually, if you will, the one and only, the one of a kind. He's the only one who was so related to God in nature and in essence. He was the only Son of God. And John says we witness the glory of this one. The glory that only someone who has the nature of God could have. There have always been teachers, there's always been leaders, and, and if you want to say it this way, even Messiah figures throughout all of history. But there's never been anyone who had the nature of God, who was God in human flesh. This was Jesus. This was Jesus. He looked into the cradle. What you would see would be somewhat ordinary. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. A baby who cried when he was hungry and, and thirsty. A baby who squirmed when he was uncomfortable in his wet diaper. A baby, in every sense of the word, he was completely human. But he was God. Unlike anyone else who had ever been born. This is what Christmas is celebrating. God became man. No one has ever seen God. John adds down in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or he has explained him. There's another way you could translate that. No one else could do that. No one else could reveal that because no one else, no one else is like Christ. He came as our Savior, sent because our fellowship with God had been broken. Sent because we, like Adam, have sinned and we've been cast out of God's presence. He was unique. He came because of our state of condemnation under the judgment of God. But He came. And to be a redeemer. Rather than just leaving us in our state of condemnation. He came to tabernacle together with us. But this is the thing. To know, to know God is to know Christ. And to know Christ is to confess yourself a sinner. In need of a savior. To have fellowship with this God who came to dwell with us. To be, to be no longer under the condemnation of your sin. To be able to, to enjoy the communion that God intended us to enjoy with himself. We have to believe this God-man, Jesus Christ, is none other than the only Son of God. We have to believe that he came and dwelt among us in human flesh so that he could die a human death and take the penalty for our sins. That's the Christmas story. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. That's what the angels sing about during this Christmas season. 
And so we're grateful that you are here with us today. If you're here with us, though, and this isn't your normal pattern, maybe you just came today because of the concert, maybe you just came today because you were invited by someone, maybe you've come to church before, you've never really understood what this is all about. Well, we hope today you understand. This is the God that we worship, the God who came to dwell among us. And if you want to know him, we want to introduce you to him. We want to be able to share with you how you can have your sins forgiven and you can come to know eternal life through the Son. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss us with a word of prayer and uh, we'll be uh, done with the morning. We'll have a visitor reception as we noted earlier back. I hope that if you need to know God, if you need to have your sins forgiven, you take a moment to step back there, come see me. Come see our our greeting team there. We would love to have the opportunity to get to know you. Love to have the opportunity to be able to share with you more about this glorious, glorious Savior. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed just with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we're grateful for our time. So thankful for the opportunity to hear the choir, to sing the songs, to recognize that what was declared by the angels that glorious night, sung by them, is the very thing that we can celebrate today. It was they who sang at creation. They who proclaim the birth of the Messiah. And now it's our great joy to join together with them. Lord, I pray that our season then would be marked by songs that in some way capture the true glory of this season the true glory of what happened that night, that you would help us to be filled with the thoughts that filled John, the thoughts of God coming to dwell among us, the thoughts of your glory manifested in the nature of our Savior. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you today. We pray for them that you would work in their hearts, opening their eyes, that they might see the true glory of this Savior. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.